Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian. This recording takes place at Gertrude's Writing Room, and we thank poet and proprietor Vanessa Shields for making the space available to us. So our featured guest today is Daniel Lockhart. Fresh from his tour of multiple Canadian cities, Daniel has joined us for this episode. He holds degrees from Trent University, Montana State University, and Indiana University, and is the author of four poetry collections, The Gravel Lot That Was Montana, This City at the Crossroads, Big Medicine Comes to Erie, and most recently, Devil in the Woods. He has also written a collection of essays called Wenchikane, Visions. His work has received multiple Pushcart Prize nominations and has appeared in Malahat Review, Contemporary Verse 2, The Dalhousie Review, Grain, The McNeese Review, and The Windsor Review, among many others. Daniel Lockhart is also the publisher at Urban Farmhouse Press. He is a Turtle Clan member of the Moravian of the Thames First Nation and currently resides at Wawa Yatanong on the south shore of the Detroit River, which is also known to some of us as the border cities of Windsor and Detroit. Welcome, Daniel. Kulamosi. Uh, so Devil in the Woods is a fascinating collection of poetry. It consists of letter poems addressed to specific Canadian public figures and prayer poems. How did you decide on that particular format? <laughs> uh, well, uh as you listed off my degrees, you know, I, I spent some time in Montana. And Montana was the place I sort of first started to really come to writing. And there was a famous Montana poet named Richard Hugo. He started the, Mon- the University of Montana writing program. And he wrote this uh, really great collection of uh, letter and dream poems. I didn't use dreams for this for a good reason. If there's anything not more stereotypical in the world than an Indian dream poem, I don't know what is. So, <laughs> I switched this up a little bit. Uh, I went with the, the letter and the prayer poems. So what the idea was, uh, why that particular form spoke to me, was a way in which we were coming out of Idol No More and looking for a way as indigenous people who were often lost our voices, uh, sort of in the mainstream dominant discourse, and looking for a way in which to re-engage Canadians, to sort of almost say, you know, like, yeah, we're separate nations, but we've all sort of experienced very similar things. So it was a way in which we could sort of have a touchstone of common, well-known Canadian stock culture items, such as uh, Pierre Burton, Al Purdy, uh, Al Waxman, some strange, uh, even Sukyun Lee is in there. So the idea that we all have these touchstones, and it's a way in which we can sort of create a dialogue, which, uh, as being Lenape, that's part of our big thing, that we want dialogue. We need to have dialogue to, to move forward. You also have letters to Katie Lang, Robertson Davies, Emily Carr, Rob Ford, <laughs> late Rob Ford, and Sarah Pauly. And so how did you in- choose those individuals? I mean, you mentioned touchstones, but how did you sort of narrow that down um, with your poetry? Uh, it's a good question because you get so much that you can possibly throw out there. How long was that list? Uh, it was it was fairly long. Now, I will <laughs> say the first poems that were written in this collection were actually the ones to Zosky. 
and to Duncan Campbell Scott. I believe the Zosky poem was published in Salt Lake City back in 2000. Peter Zosky from yeah. CBC. <laughs> uh, so a lot of it has to do with a sort of personal connection. As you note, that the, the book itself is set uh, as a narrator as being from Curve Lake, Ontario. I went to Trent University, and it was for lack of a better way to put it, it's where I sort of became able to live as an Indigenous person. I, I went to school with my cousins. Uh, growing up in Windsor, I was very separated from them. So that I got to sort of more embrace my, my uh, Indigenous heritage and culture there. And Curve Lake is a beautiful place if you've never been there. But it was a good uh, rooting place in terms of a First Nation. So all of this sort of, ha- I have some strange personal connections from from uh, Yan, uh, Stephen Yan, the, the great CBC cook. I remember watching him when I was sick on the couch, home from school, <laughs> or playing hooky. Walk uh, with Yan. Yeah, walking with <laughs> Yan. And his best, his best, uh, best ever um, aprons. So there's the whole poem there about that. And I also love Chinese buffets, too, uh, which is why I'm so skinny. Um, I haven't been going there very often, but uh, recently. However, there's the other ones. I mean, we all listen to Katie Lang. She's sort of a quintessential Canadian uh, singer. Uh, obviously, uh, Pierre Burton writes our history. And there were some small homages, like Mary Bibb poem was a shout-out to my my current community, which is Wow Young, Tanong, or Windsor. Uh, we talked a lot about that, so. Your poem addressed to former NHL coach and longtime hockey commentator and fashionista Don Cherry was obviously written and published prior to the scandal that got him fired recently. If you were to write to him now, how would the resulting poem differ? Uh, it might be a lot shorter. I'd say something like "shut up," and then that would be about it. I, I mean, I, I'm gonna be—I'm gonna be honest. There's there's some family history. Um, we have close family friends that have been in a very very. Uh, visible public fight with Don Cherry over head injuries in the NHL. Mm. And to see the damage that's done to a family when you have a, a guy up there screaming in a suit, that drives me crazy. I mean, yeah, obviously he's said enough uh, racist things to, to fill a second Mein Kampf book out there. Uh, but <clears throat> that's sort of aside from the point for myself. I think he's gotten way too much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been reading the poem a lot on tour. Uh, not that I have a complaint. I mean, obviously, Don Cherry means something to Canadians, and it means something to Indigenous folks as well, um, and obviously people of color throughout Canada. Uh, the fact that he's there as a touchstone tells us something, and I think it also tells us a, wa- a path forward, which I think we're on now. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about the title, Devil in the Woods? What does it mean? How, where did it come from? You know, what's the idea behind that? So obviously, the, the, the collection itself is set around... Uh, Central Ontario, primarily that's where the speaker lives. So you get shout-outs to like Valor's Corners and places like that. But that uh, that part of the country uh, was very sort of well-established as a pioneer backcountry place. So I think of, when I think of Peterborough, often I think about the, the journals of Susanna Moody, Atwood's uh, classic, amazing poetry collection. And we talked about this a lot at Trent, that the woods itself to Canadians such as Marie Chapdelin, we all know the, the great, the great uh, Canadian hotel, that the woods itself is something to be afraid of. And we as Indigenous people, specifically in this case, this is a niche guy, uh, the woods are a spiritual, a healing place, a home. So there's the idea that the sort of evil thing for Canada lives in the woods, and the evil thing is could be these Indigenous voices. So speaking out of the woods towards the rest of Canada. It's obviously rooting the voice in the land, as well as trying to undo that Canadian uh, mythos of the woods are going to get you. 
Interesting. There's been a lot of media attention on the letter poems because they have that celebrity appeal, I suppose. But the prayer poems are also a major part of this collection. How did those come about? They're great filler. No, no, no. It's a, <laughs> it's a way to play with spirituality. As Lenape, so I say I'm Lenape. And if you look up Moravian of the Thames, you will see that it says Delaware most often or Lenape. And this has a lot to do with religion and how religion plays into our sort of existence uh, historically and moving forward. When I say I'm Lenape, that means I follow the traditional ways, meaning the old ways before the Moravian missionaries kind of saved us in a lot of ways, um, physically anyways, from the world. If you look at our crest, there's also three crosses, as well as all the symbols for our, uh, our clans. So this idea that religion belongs to us in some very interesting way is something I wanted to always want to sort of touch on with my work and play with. And this was sort of the best way to sort of get into this. Now, the prayer poems are fun. Now, often when we talk about writing, we don't talk about the fun of doing it, especially when the book's done. But the prayer poems were kind of fun because I took the New King James Bible. And I randomly picked Psalms. And I would convert <laughs> what the subject matter was. Of course, I ended up switching a bit more of the, um, the meter of the Psalms themselves and maybe a bit of the, uh, let's go with the meter, okay? Uh, but they still were meant to address those sort of big moments in life. Now, we also know that as everyday people, we say prayers all the time. I mean, I, I'm, I was at the Spitfires game uh, Sunday here in Windsor, and like I'm not saying a prayer the spit score a goal because I want to go home. I don't want to stay there for an overtime period again. <laughs> My prayer was not answered, but, you know, I mean, we do that with 50-50 draws. We do that uh, even with, like, if you're going somewhere and you have, like, a favorite waiter or waitress, you pray that they're on. Or, oh, God, let me get through this traffic yeah. light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or anytime you cross the border to the States, we have to do this. So, um, so the idea was that I wanted to bring that sort of divinity down to the everyday because we do it all the time. Um, and there's also those moments, too, where we're thankful. So you'll notice that there are prayers that are sort of towards uh, Bannock or to Bologna, Indian steak, whatever you want to call it. And the idea is that I, as, as a person who follows the old ways, we often just stop and thank Creator. We always say, Anushit Kishama Mokwe for something. So this is a way to, to play with that, but also to sort of, it's a, partially a shout-out to to Indian country and partially a shout-out to, to non-Native society as well. So it, it works. If you do the powwow circuit, you'll see lots of prayers. <laughs> well, okay, for Roll Up the Rim Prayer, what was sort of the inspiration that started that one? Can you remember yeah, which one sparked it? Well, that was that one was, I can't remember the song, but I can remember what that, that sort of moment was. And it was when I was working at Rochester College. And I had to commute. I lived in South Windsor at the time, and I was commuting back and forth. And every damn day, I was like, please play again. <laughs> Except for one day. One day, I won JoJo's. The potatoes, I've never even eaten them. I was like, okay, I like all the things I can win. And then my parents go there like once of like over the course of 20 years, and they won a barbecue. Wow. <laughs> I won the barbecue. Fair. Now, that was like 10, 15 years ago. It was a nice stainless steel one. And, and it's... Mm -hmm. Just one of those things where even if you talk to, if you want to joke with any Canadian or even a Michigander now because they're all over the States, uh, you can joke about the roll-up to the rim. And you guys have all been there. I mean, how many people do you know that was one more than JoJo's or, well, I do, but um, it's rare. Mm -hmm. Is Indian car? steak better on a barbecue? Uh, I don't know. We, we usually can't, we, we can't afford the barbecues. <laughs> Uh, no, we just do it in the frying pan usually. Uh, and my my real love affair with bologna probably comes from my time in southern Indiana. Uh, the res, it was, it was cold. We ate cold a lot. 
<laughs> okay. In the dorms, too. So how about the, this region, living in the Detroit River borderlands, how, does, how has that um, impacted your writing and uh, informed your writing? Or how have you taken it and adapted it? I have excellent question. I, obviously, I wandered around a lot. And you'll see that a lot of my work is sort of more split between, say, uh, this area, Wauwiang and Tanong, or yeah, I just usually call it the Southern Three Fires Confederacy Territory, uh, between here and Indiana. And there's a way in which sort of my life growing up here, I'm rooted here. But when I go to a place like Indiana, my people came uh, from sort of from the East Coast all the way to Indiana and up. But I really only sort of feel a connection to Indiana. The Opex Sipu, which is the White River, is a real sort of sacred touchstone to me. But in the same way that you come back up here and your whole world is framed by this. So, yeah, I went to Montana. And I wrote the whole book about moving to Montana. But I would still, like, someone would say, oh, hey, look, this is the Madison River. That's a river. Detroit River is this Why The Madison River is, like, the size of a room, maybe, like, I can, I can wade across it. And it was a beautiful river. Nothing wrong with that river. But the fact is that everything becomes a touchstone. I saw a magpie for the first time. Did I know what a magpie was? No. I thought it was a fat blue jay. I was like, oh. <laughs> Which they kind of are because they're corbits, been. right? But, yeah. uh, we don't talk about bison there or something else. But, you know, there's, uh, there, there's a way in which that everything I do, the songs I sing, the world I understand comes from here. Hmm. Yet there's a deeper ancestral roots that seem to touch places that I don't have control over. It's a very much um, uh, a cornerstone and a meeting place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a place of, of journey halt as well as journey to and from, isn't it? It's it's very much a transportation hub. Absolutely. For the last thousand and so years. Yeah. Well, yeah, the river was a superhighway, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, you could, everything came up and down the river, and I think I mean to me, it, it's been a weird reconceptualization. Because I refer to the whole area as Wauwiangatanong for a reason. I don't think the border should be there. Mm. Uh, we are two communities that we use the border to shield ourselves from violence from outside, not necessarily from within our region. So our closest relations are across that river. Uh, we're, we're really not quite as close to the folks in London as we are right from the ones right across the river. And I think that's, that would help us all as a sort of community. And as two very distinct different nations to sort of move forward. I, 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 how are we going to tackle our pollution issues, our, our, our resource usage? I mean, all of this stuff. Human trafficking, well, that's, that's a major issue because it's a border. Drug trafficking. Ask the Windsor police, right? Mm-hmm. Gun trafficking. We'll stop there. <sighs> but yes. In addition to all of this writing and touring Canada and the United States, all this stuff you've been doing, you're also a publisher. Mm-hmm. What led to your decision to establish Urban Farmhouse Press, and what would you say are the features or the flavors that make it different from the rest? Uh, well, I was so poverty and boredom are the two reasons why I started the, uh, the press, <laughs> which uh, obviously it has alleviated the boredom part, part but it's a publisher, so you're never going to make that much cash. I was living in Indianapolis, and I had uh, just graduated from library science school. I was sort of finishing off my thesis uh, very close to the end of that point in time. And we had lived on the east side of Indianapolis in an old farmhouse that was built around 1876, um, which is weird now because Indianapolis has got over a million people. You can see the skyline, and here you are in this old farmhouse with like a quarter acre of land. And it was somewhat peaceful, somewhat, somewhat of a sort of pastoral, traditional sort of Hoosier thing to be doing. So I started that, and it really... It was something to do, but then I realized as I sort of moved forward, I was just going to do chapbooks. I'm like, 
this is a way to actually meet other writers that live outside of Indiana. And that sort of grew. And I was like, well, it's only been a year. And now we're going to move to Canada. So I brought it with me and just sort of changed some of the stuff up. And it's worked well. Um, what we are and sort of our, fun, our fun founding principle was a sort of publisher at the crossroads. So we are someone that crosses borders. We're in motion. We embrace the sort of things that maybe tie us to place. But we can also bring with us. So people are welcome. There's a sort of idea of a mingling of voices, a cosmopolitanism, if you will, uh, that also embraces pastoralism. And what that's come of, it's created some great relationships between some of the authors that we brought aboard. I think Deontay Yosiande uh, from Detroit, uh, a phenomenal spoken word poet, but to bring him onto the page was a crossing of the borders. Then we have now we have uh, folks from one of our newest titles is uh, called Mother's Mother Tongue. It's by Esgi. Uh, Esgi, oh, you're gonna kill me. I can't. I can never pronounce her last name. But she lives in uh, Warsaw, Poland. She is from North Carolina and of Turkish descent. The book is about someone who forgets to speak their mother tongue, mm. and they wake up only being able to speak English. It is sort of that one quintessential book that I point to that say this is this is one of those books that we existed as a press to put out. Okay, so um, who have been your publishing mentors? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, I think if you live in Windsor and you have two books with, with Marty Gervais, your books you're going to say Marty Gervais, and he was a phenomenal help in sort of introducing me to the Canadian uh, publishing world. Now, coming from the states, I didn't know. Um, the situation or the, I guess, the scene as much. Now, I walked in just as the dumpster was starting to catch on fire that's can lit now. Um, <laughs> so I got to see the smoke come up before the flames did. But uh, <laughs> he was, he's been, he was phenomenal. Um, one that I don't think ever gets enough, uh, enough credence is uh, Jack Ellingworth at the Ontario Arts Council. He, not that he just, he didn't just show me publishing, but he's sort of enlightened me into sort of the grand. Uh, writing culture of Canada and of Ontario. So he was a, he's been really instrumental in me sort of under, learning the sort of society in which I'm operating, you know, and I think that's... Um, he's been very supportive of BookFest Windsor, too. Uh, just a, he's a real gift to the, the literary community and in Canada. Uh, does a lot of work and great wildlife photographer. It's funny how all these great publishing minds and stuff, they're really good with photography. Anyways, uh, with Marty Gervais being that as well. Mm-hmm. And Kitty Lewis at Brick has sort of also, she's taught me a whole different realm uh, uh, of sort of writing and publishing. And uh, it was, it's been sort of a wonder to work with everyone. I had a couple good chat sessions with Dennis DeClerc at Mansfield too. So, I mean, great. sort of it's a, it's a community education process, I guess. Yeah. You say it's very collegial, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, of all the work you've published at Urban Farmhouse Press, I know it's hard to choose favorites, but what stands out for you? What is something that you feel maybe was groundbreaking, or, or that you you've done that you're really happy with? I'm happy with well, I'm happy with 99% of my writers. We should always say that I'm more than happy with it. I think one of those one of those books that was it was a really weird one to me and it, it came to me and it's by uh, Benjamin Galuoff. He wrote uh, Ho Chi Minh: A Speculative A Speculative Life in Verse, and it was it was this really sort of interesting take not only on in the '60s but looking at the sort of mythological 
creation of, of Ho as a character. I, I, I'm fascinated with communism, uh, which could be good or bad, if I say that too loud. <laughs> Please, all American border guards, turn this off at this point in time. Anyways, <laughs> it was fascinating to sort of see that take because uh, living in Indiana and, and sort of getting to know a lot of the vets, uh, I worked a lot with the Vonnegut Museum when I was down there, or Vonnegut Library, so you get to meet a lot of uh, vets, and that's what Indiana's really, really well known for, and a lot of them were from the, the Korean conflict, us Korean, the Vietnamese conflict, so to hear a different take on it was, was fascinating, and to know that someone in the States is willing to write that, who's an academic and... Now, later on, I, I've become fairly close friends with Benjamin oh, since. Uh, he's come to Pelee Island and everything else. So I think from that standpoint, a personal standpoint, that one was sort of a phenomenal moment for me. But in terms of maybe like a, a text, that a, a book that has really been important in sort of informing where we want to go, I would, I would again return to Mother Tongue. I think that's the border crosser for us. That's that's the one that that plays with language and who belongs where and what citizenship. And I think that's that's what I really want to question now. Uh, being a J Treaty Indigenous uh, guy, I can live on either side of the border. There's no border to me, and I don't understand why there should be for most people, if not everyone. Sorry, I shouldn't say most people. So, what is the next project that you're working on as a writer? Oh, okay. Uh, so. Right now I'm finishing up a manuscript for Porcupine Squirrel. They'll be bringing out a collection of short fiction entitled Breaking Right, which actually is some older work, but redone. Uh, when you write stuff in graduate school, you start it. No one has cell phones in 2008 like they have them in 2019. So you have to get that sort of, that sort of little details worked out. But it's a, it's a way to sort of explore Indiana through short fiction. That's what I actually studied, so it was a, a sort of real pleasure to move in that direction. And then I'm finishing off uh, uh, Ontario Arts Council and Canada Council-funded manuscript called uh, Go Down with Awa Way, which is, um, contains a lot of sort of considering decolonizing our geography of this area, uh, as well as sort of, uh, I guess, just experiencing this area from a more decolonized lang- linguistic perspective and, and sort of mythological and metaphorical perspective. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're going to be reading for us, Daniel Lockhart? Sure. I guess we'll give you one each. That's what I understand is going to be happening, uh, which is usually what I'm told to do, so that's good. Uh, let's. Uh, let, we talked a little bit about that roll up the rim, so let's do the roll up the rim a prayer. This is uh, for everyone still waiting on their barbecue. Okay. <laughs> roll up the rim prayer. Oh, Lord, that our conveyor belt of red taillights might burn away the half-life of 7 a.m. February mornings, receive our prayer. Tapped and rattled out with bit part change of soiled cup holders. Hopeful in the gathering of many will come but one transaction to save us. From the despair of long winter, Lord, deliver to us daydreams of stainless steel barbecues, warmth of 60-inch flat screens, and middle-class composure of cobalt sedans. Because free double-doubles, bonus donuts, and potato wedge cups tease us like bureaucratic promises of medical coverage and housing not given to black mold or torn-off siding. O Lord, let us sing anew in this pre-dawn light a chorus that shall not repeat. Please play again. (laughs) That's in bold, just so you all know. Okay, and we wanted to... We were talking a lot about crossing borders, and actually... um, we don't often hear about, actually, I was talking to a professor at the University of Windsor about teaching this cat, Duncan Campbell Scott, who was this sort of, he was a very good poet. 
and an absolutely demonic human being who did terrible things like the residential school, and he was the Minister of Indian Affairs. And this is, uh, this is a, a letter to Duncan Campbell Scott from upstate New York, and this is uh, from across the medicine line. We cross, we call the border, uh, often we call it the medicine line. It means you're transformed when you hit, when you walk across medicine. On one side you're something, on the other side you're something else. So it plays with what that border crossing's like for us. So, letter to Campbell Scott from upstate New York. Dear Duncan, you'd expect nothing less of me than dropping you a note from south of the medicine line. And yeah, sure, that's some load you expect to hear from a High Plains Indian. But hell, not like you could tell many of us apart. Old Bellany even had Bucktown all turned over. We thought white guys being Indians was the only way to be indigenous around here. Kind of like thinking that, uh, that driving a rumble seat Ford was just First Nations enough for any of us. We landed into a county fair here. The town, Chris, town center crisscrossed as if by rosary beads with those American pop-tart technicolor light bulbs. It reminded me of a vision you once had of a powwow suited for the modern Indian. All fluorescent rhinestones, Charlie Pride and R.C. Cola. So who, here we are. Yancey and I got lost by some, some of the historic buildings. Problem is, windows become mirrors without something burning from the inside. Around here, they have no need for lights and empty buildings. It's funny how reflections of ourselves can play tricks on us. Thankfully, Yancey has a good news for finding food tents. Real modern-day hunter-gatherer he is. We made it out into the street just in time for the sparklers. There's something about a seven-day, three-county deep-fryer grease that makes all of us think about treaty rights and elected band councils. But this, this here is America, right? And what self-respecting man of the crown would follow what these lot would do? Funnel cakes are one thing, fry bread and farm equipment something completely different. Anyways, just wanted to let you know both Yancey and I will be renewing our band cards after we cross the medicine line. Just hope your boys in uniform recognize our need to drift through hand-drawn lines without paper sails in our pockets. J.W. Thank you. That was really good. And you should for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, Sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.